happened. And now the executive director and senior analyst with the Gallup Center for Muslim Studies talks about the threat of global terrorism. This hour-long event was part of a conference co-hosted by the group Women in International Security and the U.S. Army War College. conversations that are going on right now, but hopefully we can continue them um, later on today. Um, I have the pleasure right now to introduce our guest speaker um, for our lunch today, uh, Miss Dahlia Mogahed. Um, and I actually just met Dahlia a few weeks ago at a joint event WISE did with Booz Allen. And uh, so I wanted to just first sort of uh, thank Booz Allen, uh, the steering committee, for our partnership with Booz Allen to, for making that introduction. Um, and Dahlia has agreed graciously to speak again at this event. Uh, Dahlia is the senior analyst and executive director of the Gallup Center for Muslim Studies at the Gallup Organization. She's recently co-authored a book with John Esposito titled, Can You Hear Me? listening to the voices of a billion Muslims. She currently provides leadership and strategic direction and consultation to the collection and analysis of Gallup's unprecedented surveying of more than one billion Muslims worldwide. And she leads the curriculum development of a three-day executive course on findings from the Gallup poll work there. Mogahed was the founder before joining Gallup and director of a cross-cultural consulting practice in the United States. She has a master's degree in business administration and from the University of Pittsburgh and received her undergraduate degree in chemical engineering. And uh, please join me uh, warmly to welcome Dahlia Mogahead. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's both uh, humbling and very scary to have to go after all those speakers that uh, both uh, the caliper, the knowledge, and just the sheer interest of the presentations makes my job very difficult. Add to that, of course, that you're all having lunch. So I'll, I'll try to make this as interesting as possible. Um, my work is really not in, um, terrorists per se, but rather the public support or sympathy for terrorism. Uh, since 9-11, there has been no shortage, of course, of theories around what creates this public support. Um, some blame religious fanaticism, of course. Others blame humiliation from the disappointment with uh, an ability to perform in a global landscape. Others look to relative deprivation theory, uh, whereby the haves and the have-nots are, are essentially at war, where the have-nots are trying to restore a more equitable um, situation. There's also the theory of the psychotic terrorist, uh, the deranged mind, and others um, blame occupation. 
and still others simply say that terrorists simply hate freedom. So well, what I will do today, uh, or at least attempt to do, is build a theory from the ground up using empirical data. So we didn't uh, set out to test any theories. We simply asked some questions and then are now trying to create a theory that fits the empirical data. What my analysis is based on is a, sub, <clears throat> a subset of a much wider study, in fact, called the Gallup World Poll, where Gallup is surveying 95% of the world's population on an annual basis. My focus is uh, majority Muslim countries as well as Muslim minorities in the West. Um, so we ask the same questions across the world and then we also have regionally specific questions. Um, one of these regionally specific questions that we asked among Muslims was a support, uh, how much support was there for the acts of 9-11. So what I will do is tell you a little bit about the difference as well as those things that they're, uh, that are actually in common between those who said 9-11 was completely justified and the vast majority who said it wasn't. So I will call the completely justified group simply high conflict. These are the high conflict group. It's, it's a generic name, but it's, it's just kind of avoids calling them either terrorists, terrorist sympathizers, potential radicals. We've struggled with a lot of names. Let's just call them high conflict for the purpose of this discussion. So what do these high conflict, what is this high conflict group, and it was a minority, of course, uh, across the world, what do they have in common with the rest of the Muslim world and what is different? And then finally I'll end with a, a possible theory that explains the data. What they have in common um, is really actually quite interesting. First, uh, is it a hatred of freedom? So, so that was one question we, we looked at. And the answer is no. Um, in fact, when we asked Muslims across the world what they most admired about the West, their top response was Western technology, closely followed by Western democracy. So this is an open-ended question with um, spontaneous verbatim responses that we've coded. So just for example, uh, a respondent in Saudi Arabia said, I admire most the freedom of press of opinion and of expression. Also, their scientific advancement. I thought this was interesting. A respondent in Iran said, I like the social justice and that they have access to nuclear power. They have real democracy. In Pakistan, law is above all and everyone observes the law, the rule of law. Um, another respondent in Pakistan said their political system is transparent and they are following democracy in its true sense. So really a somewhat sophisticated understanding of democracy. Um, it, it, was, it, was, it went beyond simply elections. Uh, a respondent in Morocco, liberty and freedom and being open-minded with each other. And the high conflict group was just as likely to give those responses as everybody else. In fact, what was sort of interesting is that they were slightly uh, more likely to say that moving 
toward uh, more democracy uh, would help Muslim progress. So the high conflict group was actually more likely to say that moving uh, to greater democracy would help Muslim progress. So this idea of a, simply a hatred for freedom does not, is not supported by our data. How about joblessness? So we looked at, this is vast amounts of data representing, um, like we said, literally a, a billion people. Um, we obviously didn't actually survey a, million, a billion people. We surveyed a representative sample that represents a billion people. So what about their jobless rate? Well, there was actually no difference. 20% um, was what it was worldwide, and, and the uh, high conflict group was no more likely than the rest to be jobless. Hopelessness, again, no difference. In fact, a slight, uh, pro, uh, a slight sort of optimism among the high conflict people. Um, Muslims as a whole tended to actually be pretty optimistic about their future, believed that things would get better. And um, the high conflict group was just as likely, if not more likely, to believe that their future was bright. Now this was the most surprising, I think, for me at least. Um, the high conflict group was just as likely as the rest to say that better relations with the West was of personal concern. Uh, and there was a significant percentage of Muslims overall that said that indeed uh, better relations was something that they personally um, thought was important. Now this is where I think this this is where this next point is really where I think we should we should focus a lot of attention, which is the sense of humiliation. Um, Jessica Stern, of course, went out and interviewed terrorists and found that one thing they had in common was humiliation, a sense of humiliation. We found that this was in fact something that was shared across the Muslim world, is a sense that the West in general, and the United States in particular, disrespected and humiliated Muslims and Islam. This is not something that the high conflict group was unique in. In fact, it was a widespread perception. So for example, a respondent in Pakistan said, a whole lobby of the West is working against Muslims and damaging our image. They should stop and respect Islamic values. Morocco. Um, the West has to change and moderate their attitudes toward Muslims. They have to stop looking down on our people, um, a perception that there is a sense of inferior, uh, sense of superiority, and therefore looking down on Muslims as inferior. In Lebanon, don't classify all Arabs as terrorists. Protest against any defiling of the Quran and punish those who do so, like those in Guantanamo jail. And in Pakistan, they should consider us as human beings and should end the war and be at peace with the Muslim world. So this idea that uh, the West doesn't even look at Muslims as being human and that it is actually at war against um, Muslims in general. The West should treat Muslims equally, against the same, same theme, and improve their relations because now they look down upon us. So this is a widespread perception, and why it's so important is because, as many of you of course know, humiliation is such a combustible emotion. It's been called the nuclear, uh, the nuclear bomb of emotion. Uh, because it's so widespread, any, um, 
small trigger can really cause an eruption, which is in fact what we saw with the Prophet cartoon. Uh, if you remember, it's about a year ago now that uh, the controversy over the Prophet cartoon erupted. It was a trigger that ignited a, a, a pre-existing condition of, of widespread um, perceptions of humiliation. Now this is what I thought was also a, a, a big surprise, which is religiosity. And you can, of course, measure religiosity in many different ways. The way we've traditionally measured religiosity at Gallup for, for uh, many decades, as we do research across the world, is by looking at um, whether or not people say religion's an important part of their life, as well as their uh, attendance at worship services. And we found that there was no difference um, between the high conflict group and the rest. That religiosity, at least measured in this way, was the same. Um, in both cases, very, very high. So religion is a very important part of everybody's life. And um, as far as mosque, uh, you know, going to mosques, I thought this was most interesting, it was actually equal. Um, it's most interesting because we often think of the indoctrination happening at mosques. So I, I did expect to see some difference, did not find that difference overall. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit at the end of, you know, sort of explaining this data. I want to read you some of the uh, verbatim responses when it comes to religiosity, though, because I think we understand sometimes in the intel community on a rational level, this idea of Islam being important to people, but not at a sort of gut level, emotional understanding of, of how important it is. Um, we asked uh, people across the world, Muslims, what they admired most about their own society. So we asked them about the West, and I told you what they said. We asked them what they admired most about Muslim society. And by far, I mean, when you have a majority of people giving the same response to an open-ended question, that's, that's very significant. And the majority in many, many countries said um, they admired people's sincere adherence to the teachings of Islam. So I admire most the Islamic values, the beliefs and the traditions. I love the Quran and its teachings. I like also that there is no racial attitude among Muslims. Supporting each other and respecting religious beliefs and the teachings of Islam, just some examples. Our religion and all its magnificent teachings. Um, why this is important is uh, when we asked Americans, just to kind of give you an analogy, when we asked Americans what they admired most about Western civilization, not surprising, um, close to a majority said freedom and liberty. So it's this emotional uh, value that people really have. And so when uh, people feel like their freedom and liberty are being uh, threatened, they react very intensely. It's exactly the same with Muslims. When they feel uh, that their faith is being attacked or is under threat, it's that same visceral emotional reaction because it, they believe it is their greatest asset and it's their highest, most cherished value. Now, what is different? If, if it isn't all these things, the poverty uh, or the joblessness, uh, religiosity not being higher, what is different about the high conflict group? Sense of threat um, was one difference. So uh, when we ask people their greatest fear for their country. 
the high conflict group is more likely to say that their greatest fear is occupation, um, an invasion by the United States specifically, and in, sort of international uh, socio-political threats. Whereas the general majority uh, talk about inflation, um, joblessness, a personal security rather than a socio-political sense of um, threat. So that's one, one difference, is that they have a higher, more acute sense of being threatened as, as a people. Also, they have a more intense sense of being dominated and having uh, a lack of autonomy. Now, it's important to understand this point in, in a more nuanced way than sometimes it's talked about. These individuals, and I'll get to this later, when we look at their demographics, they are actually more likely to be supervisors at their job than the general majority. Um, they're more likely to actually feel like they can control the, what they do in their lives. So their sense of being controlled is not really about a personal lack of freedom, but rather a sense of their people, their, their identified group as being dominated and controlled by an outside power. It's very important to understand this distinction um, because their primary identity is not as an individual. Um, and it probably isn't even as a uh, citizen of their country. It is um, very much so a, a member of a larger group, either Muslim or Arab, but it, it is not a, a sort of uh, individual primary identity. This, this, I think, echoes some of what the other panelists said. They have a lack of faith in the goodwill of the West. So they, uh, they say it is of personal concern for better relations with the West, but they're less likely to believe that the West cares or is interested in better relations. They're also less likely to believe that a time will ever come when there will be better relations. So it's this sense of pessimism, not with their own future rather, or, or with their own life, but rather with the ability of diplomatic or political means of actually making change. That the West doesn't care, it'll never get better, and so more of a, uh, a reliance or a, a, um, a re resorting to violent means. Now their demographics. Uh, are, are pretty interesting in that overall they are actually more educated and more affluent than the general population. So with, with that as sort of the foundation, the empirical facts as we've found them, how do we explain this? And I'm not sure I have a perfect answer, but I'm working on some theories and I'm actually very interested in making use of this room and it's amazing intellectual power to, to help develop some of these theories. But here's, I'm just gonna throw out some ideas for you to think about. Um, and, I, and I sometimes look outside terrorism um, literature just for, for uh, cross-pollination. A new book came out by Ronald Engelhart, who of course um, is the originator of the uh, World Values Survey. And he basically 
wrote a book about the data that he has been um, mining out of this survey for like the past three or four decades. It's called Modernization, Cultural Change, and Democracy, the Human Development Sequence. What he says is that according to his analysis of vast amounts of survey data about values, a nation's values um, go from materialistic and survival to self-expression and autonomy and then to um, free choice and democracy as the nation modernizes economically. That's really the, the kind of interesting um, link, is that there is this sequence. You can't sort of have uh, a free democratic state if there hasn't been the pre-work of, of economic reform, okay? So he says that democratic, democratic values such as free choice then emerge after this development sequence. All right, but if you have a society, now we all know societies are not homogeneous. And if a society is in the stage of um, materialistic and survival, but there are members of that society who are sort of as individuals further along in the sequence, say because they actually have their material needs met, then they are looking for this self-expression or free choice um, need to be fulfilled, but are living in very non-free societies. Um, when we look at the difference between the, the high conflict and the rest, it's not that they have perceptions that are totally unique from everybody else. It's just that they are much more intense in their perceptions. So the, the perception that the United States is politically dominating the Muslim world is not unique to the high conflict group. But it is more intense among the high conflict group. They seem to have a, a more acute um, sense of, of this issue than everybody else who, who is more sort of focused on basic personal needs. Um, the other theory that I'm working with is one developed by Barrington Moore, uh, who wrote the book Injustice, the Social Basis of Obedience and Revolt. And basically what he looked at were different case studies of revolt in Germany, China. What he found was that pre-existing social uh, grievances, as, as has been um, explained by others, are not enough to get people to revolt. That the belief that these grievances or that these pre-existing pre conditions are not inevitable has to be there for revolt to happen. So it again fits in with our, um, our overall uh, profile of the high conflict group. They have, if I use you know, a strange, maybe strange uh, expression, they have bigger egos. They're, they're more likely to be leaders in their community, even in their job. Um, they have higher education. They have higher income. So they have higher expectations and believe that they deserve to be, quote, free. And so these perceptions of these, these grievances or these preconditions that exist um, are more intensely and therefore more violently reacted to by this group perhaps for that reason, that they don't believe that this is what they, quote, deserve, um, that they deserve something different. 
Now, how do we explain the religious rhetoric? Um, because we, we said that religiosity doesn't seem to be uh, correlated with high conflict groups, um, and that really everybody is very, very religious. This is a possible explanation. Um, because it's true that many of these groups, uh, I, I haven't done a survey on how many, but many, many of these groups do have a strain of um, a very exclusivist and extreme fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. Here's a possible explanation. Again, I'm not saying this is the only right thing. That if indeed religion is the dominant social medium that everybody is sort of swimming in. So you've got a Petri dish, and it's got blue dye in it, and all the molecules in the Petri dish are swimming in this blue dye. When those molecules, uh, some of them, are radicalized, they will still be covered in the same blue dye as the rest of the group, that same um, dominant social medium. So 30 years ago, that dominant social uh, currency was secular Arab nationalism. And so the PLO talked about um, secular Arab uh, issues and, and rhetoric to recruit and justify acts of violence because that, at that time, was the dominant social medium. Today, it's religion. And there's a lot of reasons for why it changed from secular nationalism to religion, but it is. Uh, that is the, the social medium today. And so, when people radicalize, they still use the same packaging and the same rhetoric that everyone else is using to explain a lot of things. Um, but because they have been radicalized as individuals and in, in their ideology, their version of the dominant social medium also radicalizes in the process. And so they adopt the most extreme um, interpretations of that dominant social um, uh, narrative. So that's our data, and that's sort of the, the different theoretical uh, models that uh, we're working on to explain it. Um, and th the next question really is, what are the implications, or what are the policy um, issues that, that we can talk about? Um, one thing that I think uh, we have to think about very strongly is the danger of misdiagnosing the problem as one of being um, terrorism is a symptom of uh, religiosity, of, of Islamic religiosity. With, uh, from our data, it's very clear that one of the drivers of sympathy for terrorism is the perception that Islam is under threat, that it is being um, attacked and is, trying, and is being either undermined or trying to dilute Islam on the part of the West with the United States specifically cited. Uh, since the data doesn't really point in the direction of religiosity as much as uh, it does religious interpretation, that road will, may backfire in that it will give um, terrorist groups more fuel to make the allegation that indeed the West is um, after everybody and is trying to destroy their most prized uh, asset.
I'm Nora Bensahel. I'm an analyst at RAND. Um, I don't claim to have any particular knowledge of the kind that you do, but I was very intrigued about the two hypotheses, hypotheses you put forward on your explanations, one which was the sort of human development trajectory and the other sort of more of a Barrington Moore social revolutions thing. Um, it strikes me that an explanation which incorporates both is one that's based on class as opposed to generic human development and, and social revolutions, but I think it brings elements of both of those together. Um, when you're talking about human development, obviously it's people who are further up in the economic class system that are doing better off. <coughs> Excuse me, they also have the, the time, resources, mental energy, whatever you want to call it, to focus on these kinds of issues. They're also the people who may find their upward mobility most stifled by the kind of regimes they live in, by, you know, you can't blame, you know, the boss over you if you're sort of towards the high end of the system. You can blame the West or other governments. Um, and I think that, you know, my recollections of my, my social revolutions literature from grad school is, is a distant memory now. But if I recall correctly, a lot of it is that you need educated leaders to, to forward revolutions, and then you have lower class people who are very often the foot soldiers that are involved. And if, to the extent that that's right, and I'm perfectly willing to believe it's not, but to the extent that that's right, it strikes me as very interesting because that is an individual type of explanation rather than a group explanation. You talked about group identity being so important, and I'm sure that's right, but I think it'd be really interesting to see how those two interact with each other. I mean, I think you make a very good point. I think the, the role of class is very important. Um, I, what I mean by, by, by group uh, identity is that the kind of grievances that people are reacting to aren't personal grievances in that they're not reacting to their own personal conditions of um, poverty or uh, their own personal experiences, but rather almost experiences that they have uh, virtually uh, by watching um, Muslims as a whole, you know, as, as a global community in their mind being attacked or humiliated. They may have never actually personally experienced any of that, but they feel that it's um, that, that these people are an extension of themselves. So just for example, after the Abu Ghraib uh, scandal kind of came out and the pictures came out, one man in, in Cairo who was interviewed said, that was me in those pictures. That was every Arab. And so it's this, it's this idea of, I didn't experience it, but I, I still have the same outrage as if I had because of that sense of, um, a group identity. Did your research show any difference between a, a, a degree of uh, political consciousness between the norms and the high consciousness? Okay. Um, I, I guess I'll just ask you, what do you mean exactly by political consciousness? People tend to be more politically involved, either in terms of discussing politics, reading about politics, acting in politics. Well, they did say that um, current events was more, they were more likely to say that it was a part of uh, discussion. 
Um, there were a lot of questions, just by the way, like the ones that I wish we could have asked that we just simply weren't allowed to ask in, in many of these countries. Uh, but we did look at um, media consumption. We looked at um, how, how, like, how engaged they were in, in current affairs and current events. And yes, they were more engaged, more um, well-informed, so, so to speak, in that they, they knew or they, they, were, they consumed um, news more, more than everyone else. What was interesting is that, uh, you know, we looked at things like Al Jazeera. It's always sort of the, Al Jazeera is the, the issue. Among Arabs, of course, who, who would watch Al Jazeera, there wasn't as big of a difference as we may have expected. So it was like 54% versus 50. Not a huge difference in terms of um, watching Al Jazeera from high conflict to everybody else. Um, they, but what was interesting is that the, the trend um, cut across all news channels. So they were more likely, slightly more likely to watch Al Jazeera, slightly more likely to watch Al Arabiya, and even slightly more likely to watch Al Hurra, um, which is of course the, the, the uh, Department of State um, channel. It's sort of a, an equivalent of VOA. So they, they sort of were just more likely to watch or hear all news uh, outlets. And it wasn't one in particular. So I was just wondering, in your exploitation of your data, um, going back to the first hypothesis, arguably, given that you've got, was it 14 countries in your? 22. 22, sorry, yeah. okay. So 22, there's a lot of natural variation in terms of the liberality of those regimes. Right. If you were to run like a state fixed effects models, which would in, some, in essence, or even if you had other variables that could explicitly control for the variation in those countries, do you see differences um, in terms of the distribution of your, your so-called high conflict? Um, population? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and, what, and, what, and what do you observe out of curiosity? <laughs> well, I'll have to ask you to subscribe to our data. No. Um, I would, we're public, we can't afford it. <laughs> um, there does, and I, I'll be very careful because I, I don't have my data in front of me, so I don't want to, you know, speak out. Um, there, there does seem to be a correlation between um, sort of a freedom index and the percentage of people that would be in the high conflict group in, in each country. Um, we also ran a country by country driver analysis on a, a lot of different variables. And what's very interesting is that, as I'm sure no one's surprised to hear, there is a lot of variability um, from country to country. So in a place like Saudi Arabia, um, views on the war in Iraq being more harm than good were huge drivers in, uh, in whether or not someone was going to be in the high conflict group. In Egypt, if whether or not they believed America was serious about promoting democracy was a huge driver in being in, in the high conflict group, whereas in other countries um, that wasn't a driver at all. So there is, there is sort of variability. Now one now, I, this is sort of off of your question, Chris, but one piece of surprising data that I'm not even entirely sure how to explain was that 
whereas mosque attendance did not correlate in general. The one place that was sort of an exception was Saudi Arabia, and it was the exact opposite trend that I would expect. Those who were in the high conflict group were half as likely to say that they went to the mosque um, weekly. Uh, and when we did a driver analysis, it still showed up. They, they were half as likely, if they went to the mosque weekly, to be in the high conflict group. Um, so it just really points to the fact that we may not understand this problem uh, as much as we, we think we do, and more research is required um, to really understand it. Now, one thing we are doing in the future is we're asking more detailed questions on religiosity. Um, so we're not just going with those two questions. We're asking, uh, we're asking questions that look at um, depth of, of spiritual commitment. So we're asking questions like, have you forgiven someone who has hurt you deeply because of your faith? Uh, or um, because of your faith you have hope or whatever. I mean, there's all these different questions that create a, a spiritual commitment index that we will be looking at if that contributes to tolerance, contributes to fanaticism. So how does spirituality or a depth of faith um, affect or not affect uh, sympathy for extremism? Burke, and I'm with um, Third Way. I was really interested in your presentation. You talked a lot about, um, you just talked about variability, but you also talked a lot about commonality. You know, the blue dye in the Petri dish, or the um, high conflict, what characterizes them. And I'm wondering if you could comment on those observations and what your data say, and what's become very common in now in American political discourse, which is the terms Islamofascism, and viewing this as a totalitarian movement, and how your data related to those sorts of views that are becoming increasingly common in the United States? Well, I think uh, where our data would stand on that is really just in terms of the counterproductivity of using that kind of language. Whether it's accurate or not, I, I, I can't really definitively say either way. There is commonality, um, but there's also a lot of variance. But even if there were no variance, I'm really more focused on pragmatically is that productive. Um, these groups claim to represent, as, as we've had people say, terrorist groups always want to claim that they represent um, an aggrieved group that's much larger than their, that their actual membership. And what we've seen from our data is that when you ask Muslims what do you resent most about the Islamic world or what can the Muslim world do to improve relations with the West, they talk about um, helping to control terrorism, they will open, you know, as a spontaneous response, actually condemn um, terrorism as something they say that they're, when they're critiquing their own society. And when asked directly, they, they say that 9-11, at least that one terrorist act, was, was not justified. So um, they, from the data, do not represent the, the greater majority, at least in their tactics. Now, their grievances are felt uh, by a much wider group. but their tactics are not. And so the more that we can drive a wedge, really, between this group and we, and we sort of labeling them as criminals is, is a very good idea, and the rest of their population that they're claiming to represent, uh, the more likely we are to, to you know, win the war on terror. Because it will involve, like, like um, panelists have said, community policing. Uh, it will not you know, just be 
uh, a military victory. So I just, I, from the data, it's very clear that that kind of language is just simply counterproductive. My name is Nicholas Boudois. I'm an undergraduate student over in Portland, Oregon at Lewis and Clark College. And the question I have for you is how do you differentiate between a general supporter and more of um, a high-risk high supporter um, that you're talking about? And more on an operational level, um, what are the variables that determine that? I'm, maybe I'm missing it. I'm just not seeing exactly where that fine line or is it a yeah, greater? You're not missing it. I mean, I, the, the answer is I don't know the answer to that question. It's a very good question. Um, and we don't actually claim to know the answer to the difference between a, a casual supporter who's going to say, yes, 9-11 was completely justified, and yes, I hate America. Is that person really a potential terrorist? I don't, I don't think so, not, not, or not necessarily, rather. Some of them will be, but many of them won't be. But we don't, we don't actually know that, nor do we claim to know that. The only thing we can really do is, is lend an empirical, um, wide-based, representative look at where terrorism finds sympathy or a sympathetic ear or sympathetic um, heart. Many of these people might not even be willing to, uh, you know, donate. We have no idea. All we know is um, they don't have a problem with this tactic. They thought it was morally justified. We've even asked them, this is just a, a follow-up question, what, after that question, why, why, why do you say that? So in Indonesia, which is the only data I've looked at so far, um, when we asked people, why do you say that, the ones who said it was completely unjustified have given one of two responses. A, either a, a, a humanistic um, response such as the loss of human life, this is, um, it was a tragic loss of human life, or the second one is actually a religious response. This is against God's will, this is against the teachings of Islam and so forth. The ones who say it's completely justified, interestingly, don't give a religious response at all, which I thought was interesting. No one mentions a verse from the Quran saying, kill the infidel or, or anything like that. I mean, literally not a single person in Indonesia gave that kind of response. The kind of response we got were, uh, in fact, very close to what I hear a lot in, in you know, uh, terrorist statements. It's a list of grievances. Um, America's arrogant, it's an imperialistic power, it's oppressing Muslims all over the world. They're, they're very politically um, oriented responses that really could have been given by any, any ideology or any, any terrorist um, group with any ideology. So I don't know how many of the high conflict group are potential terrorists. All we can really do is say this group who has sympathy, who, who are probably the recruiting pool or potential recruiting pool, this is how they think and this is what drives them. My name is Mary Mullen. Um, I wanted to ask about the role of the imams and the, their education and the, the very different, uh, how, how different they are in, in uh, many different countries. I especially wanted to refer to an um, Economist um, magazine article about King Abdullah in um, Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. who they said was now taking women with him when he traveled. He was releasing people from prison, and he was very obviously wanting to make some changes in Saudi Arabia. 
But at the same time that he was doing that, the imams, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know how, I know that they have different groups of imams in um, Saudi Arabia, but um, the imams were arresting journalists who were supporting um, changes in Saudi Arabia. So I thought maybe you could discuss a little bit about the imams in the different countries and, and what their education is, what their influence is. I mean, we know in, in Iraq, I mean, Sadr is different from, from the others, so. That's a, that's a very big topic. Um, there, there is a lot of diversity, of course, uh, between different strains. Um, there is a tremendous amount of diversity within Islam. Uh, so when we talk about imams, for example, um, Sheikh Ali Jumaa of Egypt, the Grand Mufti of Egypt, just issued a fatwa reaffirming his um, initial opinion that a woman could be uh, the president of a secular nation state. Um, there are other imams, there was an imam, uh, there was a, a, a conference of imams recently in, in, in Egypt that got together and said that um, female genital mutilation was against Islam and, and, and was incompatible with the teachings of Islam. And then there are imams who, um, you know, have uh, very radical views uh, such as the ones you're uh, talking about. One thing that we have found though is when change is perceived to be um, imposed by the West or by an outside force, people's knee-jerk reaction is to resist that change, no matter what it is, and, and to then align themselves with uh, those who are resisting that change. So the more imams are viewed, this is really an interesting kind of counterintuitive thing, the more imams are viewed to be aligned with either the West or uh, an oppressive, unpopular government, the more likely it is that people will actually, um, uh, the, the more likely it is for, for those imams to be, uh, become illegitimate in the eyes of the people and for, the, for a significant group of the population to then follow radical imams who are viewed as independent and authentic. So this, the real danger in, in trying to sort of influence how Islam is being uh, interpreted in the Muslim world by, say, uh, supporting moderate imams or um, even if it's behind closed doors, even if it's in a secretive way, there's already so much conspiracy theory out there that if there were actually truth to that conspiracy theory, it would make things worse. I mean, I've seen the issue of Egypt where many of the public imams were actually state employees. They really were employed by the state. And so anytime they would say something that was sort of deemed as something that the, would be favorable to the West, they would, they would, the knee-jerk reaction is to immediately reject it and, and then seek out um, authentic and, and uh, independent voices, which always will tend to be more radical. Um, through the internet or through other means. And so I, I, just, uh, I just believe that any attempt at manipulating the way Islam is, is being interpreted by Muslims can really backfire, has the danger of backfiring. Could this be a reason why Muslims is lower among the uh, high it's very possible um, that they see the imams uh, as being, remember, I mean, Osama bin Laden, it's really interesting that oftentimes Saudi Arabia is, is viewed as this terrorist state, but Osama bin Laden is in fact 
diametrically opposed to the Saudi government. Um, the Saudi imams do work for the Saudi government. This is a fact. And so um, maybe the mosques in Saudi Arabia, rather than being, you know, fire-breathing anti, although they do teach intolerance, but not of not of the West really. It's sort of intolerance of of other things, um, and a very literal interpretation of many things. They are viewed by. Um, by many of, of the Saudis who support something like 9-11 as being illegitimate, like you put it. That's a, that's a possibility, absolutely. Which again points to the danger of um, trying to socially engineer the interpretation of Islam. It is, very, it, it is just so uh, hard to get it right and, and the, the, the risk of, of it backfiring is huge. Thank you very much, and thank you for letting me uh, talk at you while you eat. Yes. <laughs> Just one more question. Uh, of course, the, the way you ask the question and the time frame in which you take your, your data is, is uh, a huge factor in the answers mm -hmm. that you receive. We sure. all know that from statistics and uh, polling and those types of studies. Uh, a question, I didn't hear you, you mention the time frame you took this data, uh, and primarily I'm interested in what was the interpretation of uh, your, your interpretation of the answers if you did take data before, say, something that was humiliating to the Muslims like Abu Ghraib versus after Abu Ghraib? And a uh, significant difference, I would think, but I'd like to hear what, what your uh, thoughts are on that. Okay. Well, we, we had some preliminary data from 2001, 2002, um, but only about uh, nine countries. And then we redid the study from uh, last quarter of 2005 all the way until the, the last part of last year. So it was about an 18-month um, period where we were in the field in all these 22 countries. Um, so we actually don't have much of a comparison yet. We will be going into the field annually and, and measuring as we go. Um, but what what little we do have from 2001 to 2005, it does actually look like the percentage of people that fall into the high conflict group actually hasn't changed as much as we um, would maybe assume. Um, their profile is about the same, and the percentage of them in each country hasn't shifted dramatically. But. I, it's not conclusive. I, I can't say that it doesn't change with, with uh, increased, um, because what has changed definitely is the percentage of people in each country with unfavorable views of the United States. That has shot up. But it's too early right now to say that the two aren't correlated. But what we have seen so far is statistically there isn't much of a shift in the percentage, but the numbers, the percentages are so low that even a small shift might not really show up. We, we have to kind of keep tracking it. Uh, but that's the time frame. Thank you for asking. My name is Tim O'Keefe. Uh, I just got one, one question. Uh, is there, do you see a correlation between um, dissatisfaction with one's own government and dissatisfaction with the United States government? Like, uh, Oh, or if you know if they're more liberal, would they would they favor the United States more? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Well, I'll start by saying that in most of the countries where people most likely don't like their government, we aren't allowed to ask them if they don't like their government. So <laughs> everyone we already know the answer, but there are uh, there are ways of getting at that um, indirectly. So, for example, 
a very general question like, what do you uh, admire least about the Muslim world? And one of the top responses is political um, and economic stagnation, um, nepotism, um, corruption in government, lack of freedom, lack of freedom of speech. So th those responses are there. And, and it's, very, you know, it's very clear that they're talking, obviously, about their own governments. So um, these, these kinds of responses, of course, tend to be higher in places where the government is very repressive. And uh, in, in many of these countries where the government is repressive, they're also a close ally. So we could do more work, but there, isn't, there aren't sort of hard numbers that we can look at where we can actually do a scientific correlation. What we have are more like qualitative um, indications that their, their top responses when they criticize their own culture is, is this idea of lack of freedom. Um, what they admire most about the West is that they have freedom. And then the, the, the link is the United States is not dedicated or not serious about true democracy in our region. So you kind of put those all together and it seems pretty clear that yes, one of the points of resentment is, is the perception that the United States likes, you know, has freedom for itself but doesn't want anyone else to have it. And then two, that their own government is, um, is very repressive.